Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're delighted to have both of them here tonight. Lydia Millett's going to kick us off, so let's give her a warm welcome. Hi there, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight. I'm so happy to see this fairly large crowd, and I'm uh, deeply, deeply satisfied to be able to profit off the fame of my friend Jonathan in this way. (laughs) So I'll just read, I, I don't know, maybe for about 10 minutes from the first chapter of this here book. This is actually the galley. It's a hardback, so it's more expensive than it looks. Um, called Mermaids in Paradise. It's a sort of satirical book, which I haven't written one of for a while, but that's what it is. And it's about uh, a couple of Southern Californians who go on vacation, well, on their honeymoon in the Caribbean, and finally are confronted with mermaids. Um, But you don't get to the mermaids in this chapter, so I'm just letting you know. I know, spoiler alert, exactly. So this is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and this is um, the storyteller is Deb, the um, the wife, I guess, and her husband is Chip. Chip picked out the destination for our honeymoon. He'd always wanted to take a cruise, just like Middle Americans. Middle Americans love cruises, Chip said ardently. Chip's a romantic when it comes to the people of the Midwest, and also those dwelling along the Rocky Mountain front, the landlocked parts of the south, things like the Dakota area, or what have you. Those places are somewhat mythic to Chip. He has what I suspect is a fanciful idea. People that live away from New York or L.A., D.C. or San Francisco, maybe in a pinch Boston or even Seattle. Those people are modern-day pioneers. The middle Americans are resolute, Chip thinks, living by choice in that vast, featureless space. (laughs) that oddly irrelevant no-man's land. They have their reasons, Chip believes. Reasons we couldn't understand. (laughs) Or moral fiber, possibly. To hear Chip talk, you'd think every Nebraskan male knows how to put a horseshoe on a mule. They know how to bring forth grain from dirt, or what a combine harvester is. They get what happens to that brought-forth grain, the steps before the Cheerios. (laughs) The women knit long underwear and are adept at fruit canning. The best middle Americans are like this anyway. Pretty much old-fashioned, according to Chip. Their kids make charming toys from wooden boards, often with poking out nails in them. Not only that, those children are delighted with the products of their ingenuity. They go ahead and play with them. Those children wave a splintered board and think of marvelous fairyland. But Chip doesn't want to travel there in person to middle America. That wasn't one of the honeymoon options. Chip's a romantic, not a moron. (laughs) You don't have a Brentwood zip code and choose to spend your wedding vacation in Dayton. Literally no one does. Uh, From what I've seen, few people travel toward the middle of the country for personal reasons, unless a parent is dying. The two of us won't have to do that, since my parents, may they rest in peace, are interred in the Bay Area. Chip's father was a deadbeat dad. 
who left when he was 10, and Chip's mother, Morris the Pity, has a condo near here. <laughs> Chip just wanted to meet some of the hardy pioneers. He didn't want to physically go to the puzzlingly dull places where they live. He feared the religious hysterics, in addition, who inhabit the boring wastes and can be alarming. They frighten a person when gathered in groups or hordes or individually. Chip talks about that quite a bit when not gaming. The fact that honest middle America, once plodding along reliably with combines for the men folk, homemade preserves for the women, and for the children, some, some highly entertaining planks of wood, <clears throat> is now threatened by a growing subculture. A subculture so large it's bigger than the rest of us, actually, uh, which maybe means it's not a subculture at all, <laughs> says Chip with a worried aspect. That's where the fear comes in. The non-subculture is made of people who believe that fossils are a trick. These people are suspicious of biology and mortally offended by an ape. Also, they're angry about it. On the one hand, moral fiber, possibly, but on the other hand, madness. In any case, I said no to the cruise idea. I couldn't think of a worse prospect, a floating plastic city full of food-eating vacationers with potential for massive water shutdown, decks to be littered with plump orange bags of human waste, closed spaces, planned activities, nausea, the smell of greasy carbs, families wearing bright primary colors or even vibrant fluorescence heaving themselves into a pool. Among those families wearing flashy day-glow clothes, those clothes that actually assaulted your eyeballs with their hideous fluorescence. There'd have to be some victims of the morbid obesity pandemic. And with the possibilities of food poisoning, sewage overflow, and tragic obesity, a cruise was something I couldn't face. And so I went to Chip. I sat down beside him and took his hands and said, Chip, I'm glad to be marrying you, but no cruise ships, not a single one. So Chip moved on to other honeymoon concepts. He found a French driving tour involving Maseratis and Formula One race cars, <laughs> where pros would drive a newlywed couple many times around a racetrack super fast. <laughs> so fast their heads would have to be spinning, their innards turbulent. Not so auspicious, Chip, I said, for honeymooners, in my humble opinion. He ferreted out a Peaks of the Himalayas voyage next, with visits to monasteries, meditations, and nosebleeds from the lack of oxygen up there. I always think I would have been a monk, a nun, or some other holy person in another life. It turned out I was modern, well-dressed, and fairly talkative, but that's a quirk of timing. <laughs> if I'd been born in the medieval part of history, I hope I would have been a monk or nun, quiet and wearing a certain mantle of wisdom. I hope I would have used the time to think, possibly more than I do now as a medieval-type person. I see myself singing in chapels, light streaming down on me. The singing of hymns, the kneeling down to pray, the walking with a proud, erect posture. I wouldn't have been a peasant, I hope, busily sweeping mud off pigs, possibly dying while grunting as a baby's head stuck out of me. <laughs> However, currently I'm not a nun slash monk, and neither is Chip, and chances are we'll never be. I thought maybe the monks would turn out depressing with their enlightened, humble existence. Yes. What came up for me, considering those Himalayan monks and the gonging sound of temple gongs, the gong, gong, 
gong. <laughs> what I thought of was the suspicion a person might start to have in the monkish setting that marriage overall might start to seem like a bad idea. <laughs> the inner peace a monk projects combined with never having sex. I don't know if that attitude is really honeymoon material. <laughs> you do hear about people, sure, who visit someplace Asian and scenic, scenic at a certain altitude, Asian or Indian, and then decide to go native. In one fell swoop, they copy the whole Buddhist or yoga idea. They give away their worldly goods, move to a mountain hut where baths are taken in the snow, and then pretend they never heard of home equity lines of credit or eyelash extensions. <laughs> Next comes the cross-legged chanting, the wearing of loose and flowing robes, the eating of plain brown rice. Some of them eat the rice just one grain at a time, holding that single grain in long, delicate chopsticks. You hear about it. And despite your incredulity, the person would ever give up the bounty of our modern life. A minuscule part of you can almost see the seduction. Just minuscule, but still. I didn't want to run the risk. <laughs> I'll take a pass on that serenity, I said to Chip. Just not in the mood for it. I think, to be honest, Chip really wasn't in the mood either. Once he did more research and got an inkling that the monks wouldn't be like monks in video games. I think he'd been half hoping for monks with supernatural powers, uh, at least flying kung fu. Mm -hmm. He first expected temples you could run through, surmounting obstacles and solving puzzles as you went. <laughs> then it began to seem as though extremely wise monks might be the best he could hope for. And I think at that point his interest waned. Next, he got pretty enthusiastic on the topic of a shark feeding situation. <laughs> A shark and stingray feeding package with round-trip fare included optimistically. You put on rubber fins and swim around with hostile marine life. Next came a thrill-seeker's week-long air safari where you jumped from high places such as airplanes and treetops, wearing harnesses clipped to parachutes or bungee cords, plummeting, plunging, then bouncing, screaming, then laughing in relief at not yet being dead. <laughs> no, Chip, honey, I said. Some other time, though, we'll do that. My point was, I don't need to be reminded I'm alive. I'm well aware of it. Catch me later, when I'm 50. By then, I may be on the fence. Volcano bicycle camping, snowshoeing on glaciers, ruined Cambodian temples. All had their downsides, believe me. The volcano bicycle camping was too sweaty, I thought. We'd be so grimy in our tent at night, not showered, not fragrant, no clean linens. That also was not a goal of honeymoons, was it? And the glaciers, don't get me started there. The glaciers had crevasses that could crop up suddenly, icy blue traps of freezing death. <laughs> and lonely. After I fell down the crevasse, crumpling a leg, splinters of bone confronting me, I'd sit there all alone in the darkness of the deep, cold earth. I'd sit there racked with pain while frigid glacial meltwater washed over me. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Until, blessed release, I died of hypothermia. I could picture Chip attempting a rescue, but finally it wouldn't work. Chip's not a mountaineer. The picturesque ruins in Cambodia were a better alternative, but I happened to read a blog by a Canadian who visited Angkor Wat, got dengue fever, and bravely survived it. But then she slipped on a rotting mango and snapped her neck like a winter twig. It might have been a hoax. I wasn't sure. You never know with blogs. In this case, the blog started quite normally. One of those travel blogs you see so many of. And she talked about the dengue fever. She took pictures, even, of both the ancient, impressive buildings 
and her dengue fever rash, labeling the contrast macro slash micro, <laughs> and put up blog posts every day. Then for a couple of days there wasn't any new entry, and then someone purporting to be her sister typed in a sentence saying she was deceased. Anyway, hoax or no hoax, it's all the same to me, isn't it, in one sense, since I was never going to meet the blogger in real life anyway. Still, it soured me on the ancient temples of Cambodia, or Khmer, as they apparently call it. I knew I'd be, be there eyeing mangoes suspiciously. The memory of the travel blog woman, first stoical, then dead, would make me wonder about other maverick fruit, sudden misadventure generally. Chip yearned for daring exploits. I didn't so much yearn as, uh, you know, as just not want to have any. My vision of a honeymoon... <laughs> My vision of a honeymoon involves some relaxation, possibly spa treatments. I suggested he could do his adventure on a separate trip, a trip for bachelors, or, or men at least supporting his final bachelor days, wanting to flex their muscles, commit some acts of bravado. They didn't have to be unmarried themselves. Although, let's face it, the trip would be more exciting if they were. Chip's very friendly. Most everyone agrees on that. But still, he doesn't have what you might call a group of close friends. Not exactly. He has pals he plays racquetball with, he has his co-workers, and he does some multiplayer online games with guys from college who live in other cities. One of the racquetball players is an anger management student. That is, uh, he goes to seminars on anger management to learn to manage his anger. Chip says the racquetball can get a little edgy because of this, when the managing isn't going smoothly. I asked Chip why he even plays with them. He shrugs and grins. His name was in the racquetball pool at Chip's gym. Chip picked him at random and got into the habit, so now he doesn't want to disappoint the man. You have to wear goggles in racquetball anyway, Chip said, or you could lose an eye. I said, but Chip, aren't there some other places an angry racquetball could hit? Do you wear goggles on those two? <laughs> Just your typical nutty buddy, says Chip. This guy Resnick, he really likes to win, whereas Chip's mostly playing to get a good workout in. So Chip hits energetically till near the end, and then he misses on purpose. Still, though, he didn't want Resnick managing anger at his bachelor party. Chip's co-worker buddies, well, in terms of other men, there's Sandy, which sounds like an easygoing blonde woman, but is actually a man and not a blonde at all. And there's Tariq. Sandy's delicate, a germaphobe who buys his antibacterial hand gel in bulk. Probably not the type for daring do. Tariq is married to a woman his family sent to him. He'd never met her before the day of their wedding, but the two of them are stuck like glue. He doesn't go on trips or, or even out to restaurants. He's more of a homebody. You'll see him at office functions, but only because they're mandatory. He'll be the one over beside the water cooler, holding a non-alcoholic beverage and smiling nervously. The unasked question in his mind is, Can I go? <laughs> You see it when you look at him. Chip likes Tariq a lot. He admires him. He always mentions Tariq when the talk turns to Arabs and terrorists. Then it's Tariq tells me, or according to my man Tariq, if anyone has a negative word for an Arab, a Muslim, or that situation there, Chip rises to their defense. He trots out Tariq to show that not all Arabs are religious hysterics. We have them too, is what he likes to say. Each country has its own hysterics, doesn't it? Its own growing majority of straight-up insane people. Let's throw them all together on an island, a big one like Australia, or they wouldn't fit, and then take bets. <laughs> Chip's usually hamming it up at that point, admittedly. He likes to play the fool sometimes, likes to act less intelligent than he is. It makes other people feel more intelligent than they are. 
And then they find themselves liking him, liking him quite a bit. <laughs> Look at the fundamentalists we have, says Chip. They may not put incendiary devices in their body cavities, but they get up to their own shenanigans. <laughs> they try to gaslight the whole culture, claiming the dinosaurs were here last week, going around to the museums when they come into the cities and scoffing at a T-Rex skeleton. I think I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lydia. Now let's give a warm welcome to Jonathan Lethem. Thanks. What, what fun. Thank, thank you for having us together here like this. Um, so I know that I'm standing in front of Dissident Gardens and it's been circulated a lot, but I've been reading from that book for two years and, I'm, and I'd be happy to talk about it with you after Words, but I really don't want to read from it. So I'm going to, I'm going to um, make a, I'm going to f- go on fast forward here. This is a collection of short stories that's coming out in um, February, um, and um, I'm, I'm going to read a short story called "The King of Sentences" from this book. This was the time when all we could talk about was sentences, sentences. Nothing else stirred us. Whatever happened in those days, whatever befell our regard, Clea and I couldn't rest until it had been converted in what we told ourselves were astonishingly unprecedented and charming sentences. Esther's cleavage is something to be noticed. Or, you can't have a contemporary prison without contemporary furniture. Or, I envision an art which will make criticism itself seem like a cognitive symptom. One which its sufferers define to themselves as taste, but is in fact nothing of the sort. Or, I said I want my eggs scrambled, not destroyed. At the explosion of such a sequence from our green young lips, we'd rashly scribble it on the wall of our apartment with a filthy wax pencil, or type it 25 times on the same sheet of paper, and then photocopy the paper 25 times, and then slice each page into 25 slices on the paper cutter in the photocopy shop, and then scatter the resultant 625 slips of paper throughout the streets of our city. Fortunes without cookies. We worked in bookstores, the only thing to do. Nobody who didn't, and that included every one of our customers, knew what any of the volumes throbbing along those shelves was worth, not remotely. Nor did the bookstore's owners. Clea and I were custodians of a treasury of sentences much bigger on the inside than on the outside. Though we mostly handled the books only by their covers, or paged briefly through to ascertain that no dunce had striped the pages yellow or pink with a highlighter, we communed deeply with them, felt certain that only we deserved to abide with them. Any minute, we'd read them all cover to cover. It was surely about to happen. Meanwhile, every customer robbed us a little. At the cash registers, we spoke sentences tailored to convey our disdain in terms so subtle it was barely detectable. If our customers blinked a little at the insults we embedded in our thank yous, we believed they just might be worthy of the marvels their grubby dollars entitled them to bear away. We disparaged modern and incomplete forms, gormless and garbled jargon, graffiti, advertising, text messaging. No sentence conveyed by photons or bounced off satellites had ever come home intact. 
Punctuation, we knew this was holy. Every sentence we cherished was sturdy and biblical in its form, carved somehow by hand-drag implement or slapped onto sheets by an inky key. For sentences were sculptural. We were the only ones who understood. Sentences were bodies, too. As horny as the flesh envelopes we wore around the house all day. Erotically enjammed in our loft bed, Clea patrolled my utterances for subject, verb, predicate, as a chef in a five-star kitchen would minister a recipe, ensuring that a souffle or sourdough would rise. A good, brave sentence. I can hardly bear your heel at my nape without roaring. Might jolly Clea to instant climax. We'd rise from the bed giggling, clutching for glasses of cold water that sat in pools of their own sweat on bedside tables. The sentences had liberated our higher orgasms. Nothing to sneeze at. Similarly, we were also sure that sentences of the right quality could end this hideous, endless war if only certain standards were adopted at the higher levels. They never would be. The whole media trumpeted the administration's lousy grammar. But we were chumps and we knew it. As makers of sentences, we were practically fetal, beneath notice, unlaunched, fooling around in our spare time or on somebody else's dime. Nobody loved our sentences as we loved them, and so they congealed or grew sour on our tongues. We barely glanced at our wall scribblings for fear of what a few weeks or even hours might expose in our infatuations. Our photocopied fortune slips we'd find in muddy clogs in storm drains, tangled with advertising flyers, unheeded, And our manuscripts? Those were unspeakable secrets, kept not only from the world but from each other. My pages were shameful, occluded everywhere with XXXXXs of regret. I scurried to read Clea's manuscript every time she left the apartment but never confessed that I even knew it existed. Her title was, Those Young Rangers Thought Love Was a Scandal Like a Bald White Head. (laughs) Mine was, I heard the laughter of the sidemen from behind their instruments. Others might hail kings of beer or burgers. We bowed to the king of sentences. There was just one. We owned his titles in immaculate first editions and tattered reading copies and odd variant editions. It thrilled us to see the pedestrian jacket copy and salacious cover art on his early mass market paperbacks, to think that he'd once been considered fodder for dime store carousels. The newest editions of the titles he'd allowed to be reprinted, four early novels had been suppressed from republication, were splendidly austere. Their jackets, from the small presses that published him now, bearing text only, no graven images. The progress of his editions on our shelf was like a cartoon of evolution. And that's where our stories meet. The progress of his editions on our shelf was like a cartoon of evolution, a slug crawling from the surf to become a mammal, a monkey, and then at last a hairless, noble fellow gazing into the future. The king of sentences gave no interviews, taught nowhere, condescended to appear at no panels or symposia. His tastes, hobbies, and heartbreaks were unknown, and we extrapolated them from his books at our peril. His digital footprint was pale. People like that didn't care about people like him. Google, for what, it's, for what it was worth, favored a famous painter of wildlife scenes, beaver dams, heron hideaways, with the same name. The king of sentences only wrote. 
beavering away himself on a dam of quintessence, while wholly oblivious of public indifference and of the sales record by now likely descending to rungs occupied by poets. His author photograph, identical on 20 years of jackets and press clippings until it stopped circulating at all, arrested him somewhere in the mid-60s, turtlenecked, holding a cocktail glass forever. His last cocktail, maybe. In the same loft where we entangled, Clea and I drove ourselves mad reading the King of Sentences books aloud, by candlelight, when we ought to have been sleeping. We'd tear the book from each other's hands for the pleasure of running his words like gerbils in the habit trails of our own mouths. We'd alternate chapters, pages, paragraphs, finally sentences, hear us as we intoned his words. We'd swear they reached his ears. I'm sorry, he could practically hear us as we intoned his words. We'd swear they reached his ears. But not really. Really, we were vowing to ourselves and to each other that we'd make a day trip in search of the king of sentences, that we'd flush him out, propel ourselves into his company and confidence, buoy him with our love and bind ourselves and our secret manuscripts, oh yeah, to his greatness. We each had what the other needed. Of this we were positive. Maybe we'd watch him write. Maybe he'd watch us dance or fuck. Who knew? We'd buy him lunch. He was surely mortal enough for lunch. He'd want us at least for lunch. He lived, we learned, north of the city, having drawn from his days as a Greenwich Village flaneur whatever inspiration he needed, and departed around the time of that last photograph and cocktail. We figured that his departure from the narrow townhouse on Jane Street marked an expiration date on anything west of 2nd Avenue as an authentic locale. Minimal detective work pinned him to a P.O. box in Hastings-on-Hudson, How clever and coy he had been to find a place name that was itself with a mere insertion of an apostrophe, a sentence, and a lascivious one as well, Hastings on Hudson. So it was that we knew he'd summoned us to his hiding place. Clea could play Hudson and I'd be Hastings. We sent a postcard warning addressed to his box. No return address so he couldn't refuse. No fancy sentences fearing his judgment of those. Just fragments. Coming in two weeks, our postcard said. Get ready. Can't wait to meet in person, as if we'd already met on other planes, for we had. The appointed day came upon us like a sickness, and though each in our privacy might have preferred to stay in bed and sweat it out, we couldn't have looked each other in the eye if we hadn't staggered out of doors to the subway up to Grand Central Terminal. During the short ride, we held hands, fever sweaty at the palms. Exiting Metro North's Hastings on Hudson Station, under a thundercloud-clotted sky, we found ourselves the sole travelers not claimed by family members waiting in Subarus or beeping their driver's side doors, unlocked as they crossed the parking lot with cell phones clammed to their ears. The train continued on behind us, and the station depopulated as if neutron bombed. This is the town of the King of Sentences. This little town... He could be watching us now, don't act stupid, with a telescope. We blundered along something called Main Street, seeking the post office until a passerby directed us to Warburton Avenue. Inside the mediocre lobby, we staked out a position near the numbered boxes, innocuously pretending to screw up our change of address forms so that we had to start over again a dozen times. His box, which we surveyed with peripheral vision only, pulsed with risk and possibility. Our own postcard had been handled there, a precursor to this encounter. Losing patience, we sidled up to the main counter. Uh, What time on the average day does the average box holder typically, you know, pick up? 
box mail goes up at 10.30, came the reply. Oh, right, sure, but mostly when do citizens appear and begin to gather it up to take it to their private homes? Whenever they care to. Sure, right, this is America, isn't it? Sure is. Thank you. We resumed charades with a chained pen. Two, three, five, eight. Eighteen Hastings on Hudsonians lumbered in to check their boxes, sort circulars into recycling bins, greet the postmistress, and trade coins for stamps, each of comically tiny denominations. Everyone in this hamlet, it seemed, had just found a 16 or 23 cent stamp in a dusty drawer and had chosen today to supplement it up to viability using car seat nickels and pennies. Yet somehow between these transactions, the postmistress had snuck away for a tattling phone call or so we surmised, from the blinking patrol car that now swept up in front of the P.O. Into the lobby strode a cowboy-esque figure, a man, late 50-ish, wearing a badge in the manner of a star, lean, and when he spoke, laconic. Clea read my mind, saying to him, Are you the sheriff in these parts? Chief of police. Not the sheriff of Hastings-on-Hudson? No, ma'am, there isn't one. Can I ask what you're doing here? Waiting. Have you folks got postal business today? No, I said, but we've got business with someone who might have postal business, if that's okay. I suppose it might be, sir, but I'm forced to wonder who we're talking about. The king of sentences. I see. You wouldn't happen to be the authors of a certain unsigned and borderline ominous postcard. Might happen to be, though there was hardly ominous intent. I see. And now you're waiting, I'm guessing, for the addressee. In the manner of free Americans in a federally controlled public space, yes. We checked with the postmistress. I see. You mind if I wait a bit myself? By definition, we can't. Soon enough, soon enough he appeared. The king of sentences, unmistakably. Though withered like a shrunken apple fetish of the noble cipher in the photograph. He wore a gray sweatshirt and caramel corduroys with the knees and thighs bald like a worn radial tire. Absurd black Nikes over gray dress socks. Hair white and scant. Eyes tiny and darting. They darted to the not-sheriff, who nodded minimally. The king nodded back with equal economy. We collapsed as planned to our knees conveying the beautiful anguish of our subjection to the sole king of sentences, bowed our heads, wriggling our fingers as if combing the air for particles of his greatness. A chapter of I Heard the Laughter of the Sidemen from Behind Their Instruments, secreted in the waistband of my underwear, buckled as I knelt there. The king stood inert. If anything, sagged slightly. The chief turned and shook his head, a little appalled. You okay? he asked the, the king. Sure, said the king. Let me talk to them for a minute. Anything you say. The law went outside to stand and take a cigarette beside his cruiser. He watched us through the window. We nodded and waved as we scrambled back to our feet. Who sent you, the king said. You, 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 Clea said. It was you. We weren't so much sent as drawn, I said. You gave us the gift of your work, and now we're here, a gift in return. Take us, Clea said. No, thank you, the king said. His eyes shifted nervously from Clea, settling on me. We anointed you the king of sentences, I told him. We're the ones who did that, nobody else. 
I didn't want to bully him with the news of how scarcely his name circulated, how stale and marked down the assembly of his hardcovers on used bookstore shelves. I didn't tell you to come, he said. No, but you are responsible for our presence. Let me be clear, he said. I have nothing for you. Take us home. Not on your life. We came all this way, he shrugged. When's the next train back? The sentences that emerged from his life were flayed, generic, like lines from black and white movies. I tried not to be disappointed in this stylistic turn. He had something to teach us always. We don't care, I said. We don't have tickets. We came for you. I don't fraternize, he said. This kind of intrusion is the last thing I need. Lunch, I begged. Just lunch. I eat only what my housekeeper prepares. A disproportion of sodium could murder me at this point. Clea hugged herself with pleasure. I heard her murmur this line, cherishing it privately. Disproportion, sodium, murder me. The king craned on his Nike toes, checking that the cop was still outside. Forget lunch, I said. An hour of your time. We're to hover in the post office lobby for an hour? Doing what, exactly? No, said Clea. Let's go somewhere. A hotel room if you won't have us in your house. Or the bar, I said, offering a check on Clea's presumption. The bar in the lobby of a hotel. A public setting for a cocktail. The king laughed for the first time. A cackle edged like a burnt cookie with bitterness. What largesse, he said. You'd take me to one of our town's fine hotels. They're as superb as the restaurants. Motel 6 or Econo Lodge, I believe those are your options. Anywhere, Clea panted. The king's weary gaze again shunted. Clea, myself, the disinterested postmistress, the chief outside, who now ground a butt into the curb with his heel and turned his head to follow the progress of some retreating buttocks. The king's voice edged down an octave. Econo Lodge, he said, on Lower Brunion Avenue. I'll find you there in 15 minutes. We don't have a vehicle, I said. Too bad. Can we ride with you? No way, Jose. How do we get there? Figure it out. The king of sentences departed the P.O. and skulked around the corner and out of view, presumably to his car. I couldn't have entirely imagined the extra little kick in his step as he went. The king had been energized, if only slightly, by meeting his subjects. It was a start, I thought. On the sidewalk, we teetered with excitement, blinking in the glare that now filtered through the gnarled clouds. The chief looked us up, looked, looked us up and down again. We offered charming smiles. Can I give you folks a lift back to the station, he said. Uh, no, thanks. We're looking for Lower Brunion Avenue. Care to point us in the right direction? Why Lower Brunion? The Econo Lodge, if you must know. Is it walking distance? Longish, I'd say. Why not let me escort you? Sure. We sat behind a cage. The back seat smelled of smoke, perfume, and vomit, raising interesting questions about the definition of police work in Hastings-on-Hudson. The chief took corners smoothly in the prowling, snaky manner of a driver unconcerned about regulating his speed. So, he said, you two in the regular habit of doing junk like this? What do you mean by junk? Putting yourselves in the hands of a customer like your friend there? I'd be junk in his hands any day, Clea said defiantly. 
Well, he's old and likely pretty harmless by now, the chief said. I saw him the other day in the pharmacy, getting himself one of those inflatable donuts for sitting on when you've got anal discomfort. I'd say from what I've heard, those sort of troubles are his just desserts. We're not dummies around here, you know. When he moved up here from the city, a certain number of stories trailed after him. He's been a bad boy. He's the greatest maker of sentences in the United States of America, I said. (laughs) I've had a look, the chief said. He's not bad. I'm just wondering if you ever troubled with the content of his books as opposed to just the sentences. Sentences are content, Clea said. The chief lifted his hands in mock surrender. Fair enough, then. I've said my piece. Just understand this. Whatever my personal views of either his character or his prose, he's under my protection surely as any other citizen in this town. Comprende? Does everyone up here speak Spanish, said Clea? Is this a bilingual metropolis? That's enough out of you, young lady. Here's the Econo Lodge, and a good day to you both. Thanks, chief. We crept inside the Econo Lodge's slumbering atrium. A uniformed teenage clerk blinked hello, raised his hand. We ignored him. The king of sentences hovered behind a counter bearing urns of complimentary coffee labeled premium diesel and jet fuel. The king nodded mutely, beckoned to us with a tilt of his chin. We trailed him down a corridor with a tongue-hued carpet. I worked not to visualize an anal donut. Inside, he said. The king lit only a lamp at the bedside in the windowless room. We crowded in, the room a mere margin to the queen-size bed. The air conditioner rumbled and hummed. The temperature was frigid. The king took the only chair, gestured us to the bed's edge. We sat. Clea and I began talking simultaneously. We're, I said, Clea said, you're the... Let's not waste time, the king interrupted. He spoke in an exhausted snarl. All redemptive possibility purged from his voice and manner. Our rendezvous had taken on the starkness of an endgame. Do you want money? Money, I said. That's right. He reached into his shirt pocket and revealed a packet of 20s, obviously prepared in advance. It occurred to me wildly that he'd taken us for blackmailers. Perhaps he was blackmailed routinely, had cash on hand for regular payouts. How much will it take to make you go away, he said. He began counting out piles. 20, 40, 60, 80, 100. We don't want your money, I nearly shouted. You've given us enough. You've given us everything. We're here to give something back. I suppose I'm meant to be glad to hear it, he said. He repocketed his money carelessly. We'd like you to be glad, yes. He only cocked an eyebrow. What have you got for me? I untucked my polo shirt and withdrew my chapter. The page is a mass curled and baked in its secret compression against my belly. I knew you looked funny, Clea cried. I ignored her, handed my pages across to the king. He accepted them, his expression sour. For a moment there, I thought you were about to undress, he said. Would you like that, Clea blurted. Should we undress? The king examined us starkly. He placed my chapter ignominiously on the carpet beneath his chair. Perhaps we were at the crossroads. Perhaps we had his attention at last. Yes, he said cautiously. I think that could be advantageous. We stripped, racing to be the first bared to his view. I'd lose the race either way, for Clea had rigged the game. She had written a sentence on her stomach in blue magic marker. The sorcerer lately couldn't recall whether he was a capable sleeper or an insomniac. Brilliant, I thought bitterly. The king stared. 
I saw Clea's pubic bush through the eyes of the king. Clea's bush was full and crazy. I thought, I will never see it again without seeing the pubic hair at which the king of sentences once glanced. The king said, insomniac, I believe. Clea blushed around her sentence, her flesh blazing like neon. Hand me your clothes, please, said the king. We handed the king our clothes. He began immediately rending them in a weary frenzy of destruction, tearing both of our shirts sleeve from sleeve, shredding Clea's bra and underwear, slicing at her skirt with his nicotine teeth. He struggled to do any damage to my jeans. I felt I wanted to help him somehow, but stood jellied in my nakedness, doing nothing, not wishing to insult him, to draw attention to his feebleness. It was a mighty enough display, given his age. The hands that had forged the supreme sentences in contemporary American writing were now dismembering the syntax of my underwear. (laughs) Soon enough, our daily costumes lay in an unseemly ruined pile at our feet. My chapter scattered beneath the clothes and chair legs, forgotten. He hadn't looked at even one sentence. Never would. I knew I would have to forgive him. So I did it right there and then. I forgave him. The king moved to the door. We stood on our bare feet, wobbling slightly, goose-pimpled, still breathing out clouds of expectation like frost breath. That's all? Clea asked. That's all? You ask? Yes, he said. That's all. That's more than enough. You're leaving us here. I am. He closed the door carefully, not slamming it. Clea and I waited an appropriate interval, then turned and clung to each other in a kind of rapture, understanding abruptly and at last just what it takes to be king, how much in the end it actually costs. Thanks. We can take some questions from you guys if you if you're not too uncomfortable sitting or standing or crouching wherever you're you're at and um, and this is where you can make me talk about dissident gardens if you want or find out why she didn't, didn't tell you about mermaids. Oh, great. So, anyone got one? Don't you like Chip? Why don't I like Chip? I love Chip. Chip's my ideal mate. Are you kidding? <laughs> if, if I could find a husband like Chip, I would be married today. <laughs> There's something I really uh, no, just love and admire about people that are friendly to everyone. Actually, I was saying this earlier to Jonathan. I just, I love it, even though I myself am not that way. I'm always sort of like, you know, I'm not going to speak to you just because you're here. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but so we, we came together in a room that doesn't make us, you know, besties, right? Like we just, we were configured in the same space together. And, uh, but then there are people who are just, you know, not like that. Their hearts aren't dark like that at all. Their hearts aren't black like mine. And they think, we're in the same room. We have something in common. Let's talk. You know? And I admire that. It just seems like every guy in a commercial. Every guy in a commercial? Yeah, like if they really were like that. Except those guys are just pretending to be like that, and Chip really is like that. <laughs> Why don't you watch him? <laughs> 
It'd be hard to sustain a really dark personality with the name Chip. You'd kind of, you're yeah. kind of stuck. That's true. That's true. I have an uncle named Chop. And so, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and he's not dark at all. He's uh, light. He's on the light side. Anyway, next question? Anyone? Or a comment? Hi. I wanted to ask you about the last event, the coming event, the last chapter. Made me rethink the book. Oh, man, it was kind of So I don't know if I'm going to ask you about Oh, you're trying not to yes. do a spoiler for everyone or whatever. You guys should talk afterwards. <laughs> okay, we yeah. can talk afterwards, sure. I wonder why, knowing this, people would have cared, I guess. Okay, we'll talk after. This is, this is very, this is national security right here. <laughs> hey. I have a question for both of you. What inspired Book or the story, like was it an idea or a person or a, you know, kind of what was the genesis of the actual story? Why don't you take that yeah, first, sure. John? Well, I can talk about that exact story, I mean, about King of Sentences. I mean, it, you know, I've sort of uh, had the fate of getting to be on both sides of that exaggerated equation, and um, and I'm probably exactly somewhere in the middle. There are still writers I feel awestruck to be in the company of. And but you're the Duke of Sentences. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, but I definitely was also, you know, I've, I've also, you know, grown old enough to, to find myself uh, um, worn out by other people's innocent, you know, uh, pure... Like the same thing that I used to be full of myself, and now I sometimes find it abhorrent in 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 the young, right? So I can I can play both sides of that that story, and, and um, but there's you know there are a lot of people I wanted to stalk at some point, uh, and and um, I I I had the the fate of um, coming of age just when I was really really wanting to be a writer. Uh, I fell in love with a number of writers who were alive but s- super inaccessible, really reclusive. And so um, this is like a kind of a me going in and exploring the embarrassment of my, of my insane fantasies about how grateful they would be if I actually, you know, stalked them. Yeah. No, not really. I, I, it's a matter of public record, isn't it? No, I, I I didn't really manage it. No, but I mean I was I did work in bookstores, and I could sometimes um, get like a uh, a lucky uh, like um, one of the first times Don DeLillo ever read uh, in public. I mean I think he's a little less reclusive now, but he, he broke a long silence to do a couple of events for a book called Mao Too. And it was like a frenzy because people had not seen him in the flesh, and the I, w- I didn't actually work at the bookstore where he's invited to read, but um, but uh, the because we were booksellers in the same town, the people at Black Oak Books, this was in Berkeley, let other booksellers, and I was working at Moe's, have the the best seats, and I managed to actually be like. I was this guy, except, except um, I, I moved my chair even closer, and 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 I just remember I was like I just and he was standing at a at a 
No, he was seated on a... Actually, it was like this, except there was a podium too, but there was a space in the podium. So he was reading, and everyone else was just relating to like his face, and everyone was awestruck. It was a very reverent room. And I got to like look at his knees and his nervous... Uh, his nervous jeans, and I think actually I kind of stole his bad, you know, dress socks and, and sneakers combination for the story. And I remember thinking, I could just reach my foot through that podium and just kind of play footsie with Don right now. You know, and it, it was just so so sick that that was what I was focused on. Um, anyway, yeah, I'll stop. Yeah. Oh, do I have to? I don't have to answer that, too. I can't top that. How did you? I've never stalked anyone. No, that's that's not the question for you. Oh, (laughs) how did you come up with this story with your with Um, your book? I want to talk about the stalking. (laughs) No, Um, uh, well, I just I've always liked mermaids. I like, and my daughter suggested this that I should write a book called Mermaids in Paradise. It's true. She's only ten. She was like seven at the time. But I ran with it. And, uh, no, I've always just been sort of fascinated by their strange, erotic lack of having legs. And, uh, you know, the fact that there are these the, the odd sort of truncated sex symbols that sort of seem to be kind of have age, all age appeal, like all ages appeal, and um, children like them and just perverts like them, and, you know. Um, and so, uh, and yet they're, they're uh, you know, they really are, they're subnatural rather than supernatural. You know, we don't, they don't have more powers than we do, like like fairies or, um, you know, or superheroes. They actually have fewer powers. They can't even, if they want to even just take a walk on the beach, they have to, like, sell their life or, like, their voice or whatever. Or if they want to just have a boyfriend, they have to die. You know, it's just tough. It's tough being a mermaid. And um, so I thought it'd be fun to write a story that had these odd, powerless sex symbols sort of at the center of it as a symbol <coughs> and also told the story of a honeymoon, which of course is this, supposed to be this ritual journey devoted to sex. It's like a rite of passage, only it isn't that anymore. It's now this just sort of consumerist vacation that we tend to take. For most people, it's not It's not actually where you lose your virginity. <coughs> I mean, call me jaded, but I think that's the case. <laughs> um, so I just thought it would be it would, it would be exciting to combine those two elements. So. More? If, if, if not, we can stop and sign books, I guess. And if you don't want to say it in front of everyone, do feel free to come up and just say it to us. <laughs> well, not anything. I mean, some things. Um, how, how personally connected are you guys to the titles that you create for your books? And, and where do the titles come from? Is that something that it's the beginning, is it the end? Yeah. Well, for me, it's usually the beginning, and I usually make a title and then uh, just sort of do a book that fits it somehow, you know, because it's a good starting point for me. I like to have... Otherwise, I wouldn't have any direction at all because there's just this empty page or this like just white screen, and I like to just go from. I don't like to scheme or plan really my books anymore, but I do. I do like to have something to pin it on, and so I usually go first with a title. And I remember that one book I wrote where I had 
I only wrote it because I just thought I liked the sound of the title. And that was, I, th I think, the second book that was ever published that I wrote. It's called George Bush, Dark Prince of Love. <laughs> and I just was sitting in my, in my living room in New York, and I thought that I should write a book called that. And this was like with a senior Bush. This was not, you know, the younger Bush. Not, not the real Dark Prince of no, Love. Not the real Dark Prince. Yeah. This was the lighter prince, really, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just wrote a book to, to suit the title. And so I tend to do that. How about you? I, I, I always have a kind of a placeholder sentence. I usually have a working uh, a title, I should say. Uh, I, I have a working title that's at some level I know is not good enough or um, uh, I'm wishing that it, I'm, 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 I might be rooting for it, but half-heartedly. And it, ca it carries me to when uh, I finish and, the, and then my first reader is my editor or, or, or whomever it is says to me, well, this is great, but you know you have to retitle the book. And I always end up putting a, uh, a title on at the very last minute. I've come up with almost all of them at the very end. There are, there's two novels that, were the, uh, that are the exception for me where the title I had all along turned out to be fine. And that was uh, Girl in Landscape and Dissident Gardens. Other than that, they've all gotten these late retitling. So I have these phantom titles that I only I know. It's like the alternate reality version of the book. Well, then with, with what uh, title did you begin Fortress of Solitude that you want to say? Uh, well, I don't usually like to say, but... Um, okay, then I'll Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, Fortress of Solitude had... Uh, had um, a few titles along the way because it was long in the in the in the making and it's a book of different parts and it was like I I couldn't find a title that covered all of it, um, but I a lot of its uh, provisional titles were quite bad and they came out of soul music mostly like Take Me to the Bridge, which is is terrible, but but does you know relate to the to the motifs in the book and the um, yeah I didn't have anything good. There was there was a point at which it was titled "Thirsty People," which was something that doesn't mean anything to anyone else. But it was said to me by a friend of mine who'd spent a lot of time in jail, and so it was deeply meaningful to me. He was trying to explain, you know, he was trying to like lay it on the line, and he was saying to me that really criminals, they're you know, or the the, the unfortunate of the world, they're just thirsty people. They just they're just thirsty. Jonathan, they're just thirsty, and so thirsty people haunted me, and um, it it almost it almost made it to the, to being the title of the book, um, but it's probably for the best that it that it didn't make it. Thanks. Um, I'm interested in in which books you first read, where you went. This is something that I want to. I, I I now have to write. You know, who, who was your earliest King of 